You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ podcast. I'm Berta Twisselman, one of the BMJ's web editors. This week, the print BMJ features a cluster of articles on suicide. One of those articles talks about the efficacy of physical barriers to prevent suicide from bridges. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from the survivor of such an attempt and from a psychiatrist who wants to break down the stigma by talking about suicide. And it was at that moment when she walked away that I, that I jumped. The millisecond I let go of the rail, I knew I made a mistake. The millisecond my hands let go of that rail, I regretted everything I had done. We'll also hear from one of the authors of a study looking at a link between when a mother gives birth, whether it's a normal working week or out of hours, and the risk of neonatal death. My personal feeling about it is that the, um, the difference is more likely to be explained by the inability to respond very quickly to a problem rather than the inability of the staff to detect that there is a problem. But before all that... This week's big international event was the 18th International AIDS Conference in Vienna, Austria. The BMJ's editor-in-chief, Fiona Godley, hosted a courtroom-style debate on the pros and cons of starting highly active antiretroviral treatment, also known as HART, early. The BMJ's Richard Hurley was also there and reported on the sessions. Rich, one thing to hit the news was the protests that took place around the opening session. Can you tell me a bit more about those? Sure. Um, well, there are an estimated 25,000 delegates at the conference and at the, at the start of the opening session on Sunday night, we watched um, a mob of angry protesters march along the length of the um, convention centre and they then stormed the stage. They were holding banners say, with slogans such as Broken Promises Kill, Fund HIV Now. They were angry about the likely, well, the, the stagnation in funding today and likely um, drops in funding in the future. OK, so, so did they have a specific reason? One of the big disappointments is that uh, the G8 set 2010 as the deadline for universal access to prevention services and treatment worldwide um, and they haven't met that goal. So what solutions are they suggesting? Um, There are 5 million people in poor countries now on antiretroviral drugs but there are 10 million more people who need them. The amount of money the Global Fund needs to to, to reach that level um, would be 20 billion and that's what rich countries need to give to the Global Fund um, this October. And what's the likelihood of that happening? Given the, given the shortfall that we've seen between 2008 and 2009, it seems likely that that won't be reached. But. Would you like to tell me something about the human rights aspect? Yeah, the, um, the theme of this year's conference was Rights Here, Right Now. And uh, this was repeated throughout di- uh, different sessions. And the idea is that, that universal access to HIV prevention and treatment can only be achieved if um, all countries fully embrace human rights. And that means recognising full rights of people who use drugs, people who um, sell sex, uh, men who have sex with men, prisoners and so on. Um, And there are so many countries in the world where these people, these groups are denied their full human rights and um, that exacerbates HIV. Okay. now you wrote that the deputy president of South Africa received a standing ovation. Can you tell me a bit more about that? South Africa's really turned around its HIV um, epidemic in terms of 
treating people. And he also made it very clear the South African government's commitment to prevention and treatment. And he also stressed the importance um, that, that there can be no revolution in terms of HIV unless the rights of vulnerable groups are protected, which includes men who have sex with men, um, sex workers and injecting drug users. Uh, what's the situation in other African countries? Are they representing a similar line? Are they following similar goals? I, I think the situation in most other um, African countries where, the, where HIV is um, a big problem is they're having much less success. And some of the problem is that some of those groups are marginalised and are not um, given full human rights, particularly men who have sex with men mm-hmm. who um, uh, are in many African countries criminalised. Mm. Would you like to tell me something about the Vienna Declaration that uh, delegates were um, invited to sign? The BMJ has just published several articles on on reducing harm, especially HIV, among injecting drug users. Um, And this was another big theme running through the conference. They're an often neglected population. And particularly in Eastern Europe, dangerous injecting uh, practices are fueling the epidemic. The conference is promoting the so-called Vienna Declaration, which um, more than 10,000 signatories have uh, already pledged support to. And it's calling for governments around the world to reform um, drug laws so that they're based on scientific um, evidence rather than ideology. So that instead of criminalising drug users, which is shown to increase harm, not only uh, among drug users themselves, but also in the communities in which they live um, and further, um, that they should be treated and, and helped and that that will um, help to reduce transmission of HIV. So please go to www.viennadeclaration.com and add your support. Well, thank you, Rich. There are various other stories on bmj.com covering HIV AIDS and the conference. And of course, we've got two videos and a podcast on the topic. If you look at the cover of the BMJ this week, you'll see an image of the Bloor Street Viaduct, a bridge in Toronto, Canada, that's notorious for suicides. Inside the journal, you'll find a cluster of articles looking at the problem, which claims an estimated one million lives worldwide every year. Now Duncan Jarvis talks to the survivor of a suicide attempt and to a psychiatrist who trains GPs to tackle the problem. When the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco was completed in 1937, it was famed as the longest suspension bridge ever built. These days it's more infamous for being the site where the greatest number of people have sought to end their lives. Over 1,200 people have jumped from the bridge. Only 29 have survived. One of those survivors is Kevin Hines. Kevin suffers from bipolar disorder and in 2000 was overwhelmed by his disease and was compelled to kill himself. He joins me now on the phone from San Francisco. So Kevin, when did you start feeling like you wanted to hurt or even kill yourself? Uh, I, had, I had the first thoughts in my uh, junior year of high school and I had, um, I had attempted to harm myself by way of cutting. Um, and I stopped because of a song I heard that came on my... CD player, and I would just press repeat, and I put the knife down, and that was the first time I, I wouldn't say that was an attempt, I'd say that was a, a big cry for help. Did you talk to anyone about how you were feeling? 
No, I didn't talk to anyone about them. I kept it hidden, uh, as, as is the nature of suicide. And talking about it, people don't want to. And people are ashamed of, of those feelings. I didn't want to be shunned before I you know, might, have been, might have died. Alice Culking is a consultant liaison psychiatrist based in the Betsy Cadwallader Health Board in North Wales. She and colleagues have developed the Connecting with People training programme on suicide and self-harm, which now forms part of the Royal College of Psychiatrists education programme. Alice, is it common that people don't speak about their feelings to, to doctors? If you look at people who actually do end their life by suicide, the vast majority have never been seen um, in specialist care and certainly not seen in the year before their suicide. However, you know, these people don't live in a vacuum. They have friends, family, work colleagues, and they go and see their GP. And the majority of people who do die by suicide actually do visit their GP, often in the months before their suicide. A lot of people don't tell anybody that they're having suicidal thoughts. And I think there are many different reasons for that. But I think maybe the, the most important reason is actually stigma and a lack of understanding. And sometimes the first time that an individual will admit to having suicidal thoughts is actually following self-harm. Kevin now tours the US talking to groups and schools and universities about his suicide attempt to raise awareness. Kevin, could you tell us about the day you jumped off the bridge? Uh, well, I, 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 I had written a suicide note the night before to my family, my friends, and my girlfriend at the time. And I got to school and I dropped all of my courses except my English class because it was my favorite. I, I then got on a bus and went out to get a last meal, and I went out to the Golden Gate, and on the bus toward the Golden Gate, I just cried profusely to myself in the back of the bus. At this point, praying that someone would ask me if I was okay, if something was wrong, or if they could help me, because what happens when you become so suicidal is that you, you end up making a pact with yourself. You hope someone intervenes, but you're not going to say anything. You're not going to outwardly emote that you're having a hard time, except by the crying and whatnot. Um, and uh, I've done just that, made that pact with myself, that if anybody comes up to me and asks me if I'm okay, I will tell them everything. Alice. Kevin there said he wanted to talk to someone about what was going on in his head. Yet often we're reticent to talk to someone about them feeling suicidal. Is that something you found with GPs in your training sessions? Actually, there's often a misperception amongst both the public and professionals that actually maybe one shouldn't ask about suicidal thoughts in case you give somebody the idea. And that's simply not true. You cannot give somebody the idea of suicidal thoughts simply by asking, and that is often the first step in reducing their risk. And in fact, sometimes some apparently minor interventions can stop somebody going on to complete a suicide. And I've had patients who, you know, quite extraordinary events have stopped them. One lady, I'm convinced, was stopped by a lady on the checkout. And when she put the paracetamol on the conveyor belt, 
the checkout lady just said, she needs these, love, but in a very kind way. And my patient said, no, no, I don't, and sort of panicked. Ran home, locked the door, rang her daughter, and her daughter brought her into the emergency department. Well, unfortunately, in Kevin's case, he didn't have anyone to derail his intention of suicide. Kevin, what happened when you actually jumped? And I half-heartedly and with heavy feet walked on the on the span, begging myself to turn around. And I walked up and down that bridge for nearly 40 minutes, crying my eyes out like a little baby. A woman approached me, and I believed this woman was going to ask me if I was okay. I believe she was going to save my life, really. And she said, uh, will you take my picture? She was just a tourist, and she just wanted her picture taken at the bridge, which is completely understandable. She had no idea what was going on in my head, nor how, how could she. And it was at that moment when she walked away that I, that I jumped. The millisecond I let go of the rail, I knew I made a mistake. The millisecond my hands let go of that rail, I regretted everything I had done. So, Alice, there, Kevin talked about his regret the second he let go of the handrail on the bridge. Now, is that kind of regret something that you've come across in other patients who've survived a suicide attempt? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the really important points that we can learn from Kevin's story, and it's incredibly poignant, is the intense pain that people feel. And, and certainly in line with what Kevin said and what other patients have told me, at the time they were not thinking clearly, all they could think about was stopping the pain. And that also fits in with the, um, with the evidence we have in terms of academic research, where patients who had survived a potentially very serious and almost lethal um, suicide attempt, they were asked to complete a questionnaire when they were feeling better. And the vast majority of patients didn't just tick the, 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 um, to end my life, they actually take lots of other different reasons. And I think that shows how complex it is and that when patients are in this suicidal crisis, they are so distressed that they're simply not thinking clearly. They're simply not able to think of other options, just ending the pain. Hmm. And that makes some research that's in the BMJ this week even more poignant. The study of the Bloor Street Viaduct um, found that physical barriers didn't actually lower the suicide rates. It didn't prevent people going on to commit suicide elsewhere. Yes, absolutely. And I'm very familiar um, with that research, having been a reviewer. And I felt it's very important that it is published. But it's also interesting because it is not in line with all the other published evidence. I think it's actually really interesting to see, well, why in that population, why in that study did it not reduce? And it may say something about the people in that study, how maybe desperate they were, and maybe they had crossed the line so much that it didn't, sadly, it was unable to stop them. And I think if we take the analogy of heart disease and myocardial infarctions, say 50 years ago, cardiologists, when they treated heart disease, it would be simply treating an acute myocardial infarction. Now, of course, these days, you have general practitioners actually treating patients in terms of both secondary prevention but also primary prevention and it's very routine that GPs will prescribe a statin with a number needed to treat of 95 and what I'm saying is well let's take this approach in suicide prevention 
Let's not wait until that person is so desperate that they're about to end their life. Let's actually intervene earlier. And when one intervenes earlier, the interventions are much more sensible, they're much more simple, and suicide prevention is not the preserve of specialist mental health services. Everybody can have a role. Yeah, to follow on from that, what can GPs do to get better at that kind of thing? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of evidence that GPs themselves recognise that they need more training. And there are two main training packages which are available in terms of an international basis. Um, ASSIST has been incredibly well evaluated and it is suitable for everybody. There's also STORM, which again, um, although originated in the UK, is now actually spread beyond the UK and that is mainly designed for healthcare professionals. And both of these have been mentioned in a recent report from the Royal College of Psychiatrists Working Group into suicide and self-harm, in addition to connecting with people, which is more recent in origin, which is designed to reduce stigma, increase empathy, and teach basic skills, and almost fits in with the other two in terms of the the first level of awareness to then persuade people to spend time on a two-day course to, to really get the skills that they will need, which will really help them in the future. Alice, Kevin, thanks for joining us today. And Alice Cole-King has written a personal view on suicide that's now available on bmj.com. Another paper available on bmj.com is entitled Time of Birth and Risk of Neonatal Death at Term, Retrospective Cohort Study. Duncan Jarvis now talks to one of the authors about their findings. I'm joined on the phone by Gordon Smith. He's a professor of obstetrics and gynaecology at the University of Cambridge. He and his colleagues have published research looking at the relationship between time of birth and neonatal death due to intrapartum anoxia. So Gordon, this isn't the first time that the link between time of birth and risk of neonatal death has been looked at. What's different about your study? There are a number of uh, strengths to the approach to the study. A really important one is identifying uh, eligible births. So if we're looking at Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, that's the time where planned caesarean sections are normally performed, uh, which would be, say, for babies that are in a breech presentation or women with a previous caesarean section. Planned caesarean section carries virtually zero risk of death of the baby due to anoxia. And therefore, if you perform an analysis where you include planned caesarean section, you might see an apparent uh, lower risk of delivery during the normal working week. But it's simply because... Uh, a significant proportion of the births during the normal working week are by a mode of delivery which, where the baby really can't die of asphyxia. So one important part of this was that we had information on whether the, any caesarean section was planned or emergency. That, that's relatively unusual when there's a lot of databases where people have addressed this sort of question where they don't have that level of detail. Uh, second point is in uh, defining the event. So we were able to look at uh, the death of the baby uh, due to intrapartum anoxia. Uh, So we had quite specific information on the cause of death, and the cause of death over the study period was coded by a medically qualified individual uh, working in the Scottish office who had access to the clinical details of the case and the post-mortem results where it's obtained. It's really important that you are able to identify events that are potentially affected by time of day. So take the example of a baby that has renal agenesis, absence of the kidneys. That baby is going to die in the early neonatal period, irrespective of the time of day or the day of the week, because it's an invariably lethal 
condition. And so if you're unable to exclude those sorts of cases, then you, you, you'll tend to attenuate any association uh, between out-of-hours delivery. The death due to renogenesis could never be influenced by the day of the week or the time of the day. The third aspect of the comparison uh, is you defining out-of-hours. So some studies had previously uh, compared daytime and nighttime, and other studies have compared weekend and weekday. Um, but we really felt it's important to separate this into uh, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, and all other times. Because if you simply look at weekend versus uh, weekday, well, if we think of a birthday at 3 o'clock on a Wednesday morning, uh, you're going to have, in all likelihood, the same uh, sort of relative uh, reduction in provision of care in the middle of the night as you're going to have at the weekend. Uh, and so we felt that uh, it was important to uh, take into account both the day of the night and the day of the week. Uh, and uh, uh, there are many studies that failed to make that distinction. So you started off with cleaner data than these previous studies. What did you find and, and how did that relate to what those previous studies found? Um, well, the previous studies we really felt didn't show a consistent pattern of response. There were some studies that showed increased risk. There were other studies which didn't. Uh, what we found when we performed this analysis was that at any time other than Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, excluding planned cesarean sections, there was about a 40 to 50% increase in the risk of the death of baby uh, due to shortage of oxygen, intrapartum anoxia. Uh, the, this uh, association was specific uh, because we didn't see an association between neonatal death due to other causes. Uh, and this, uh, again, made us think, well, this is uh, likely to be due to complications of labour and delivery, and those could be plausibly explained by variations in uh, the quality of care uh, you know, at the weekend and at night. So if this is down to a difference in the quality of care, does that mean that this is a training issue? So we need to make an oxio uh, more centred in people's minds? Yeah, I mean, it, it depend, that really depends a little bit on what's causing the death. I mean, I suppose my personal feeling about it is that the, um, the difference is more likely to be explained by the inability to respond very quickly to a problem rather than the inability of the staff to detect that there is a problem. Uh, so I, I'm not so sure that it's, it's, uh, it's a problem of reduced surveillance for anoxia. I think it's more in the event of, say, some acute event during the night, it's just harder to respond to it. Uh, in a, in a timescale that um, results in a, a better outcome. And that's simply due to the fact that there's more to do and fewer people to do it. Yeah, and potentially, you know, uh, a staff that has a second operating theatre during the day doesn't have one during the night. And if they want to open up a separate second operating theatre, they maybe have to call in a second anaesthetist, second set of uh, operating department staff, uh, you know, the, those sorts of issues who might, who might actually be committed elsewhere in the hospital. With the NHS having to make significant savings at the moment, do you think it's realistic to ask for, for more consultant care to, to cover labour wards? There was really three points to the response to that. Um, I mean, the first one is the, the nice guideline for deciding on whether interventions are economically indicated or not is that the effect of the intervention should be uh, such that the cost per additional year of life gained, quality-adjusted life year, uh, is £36,000 or less. Now, one of the issues here is that these babies would have normal life expectancy if they were live-born and born healthy, because these, these are babies at term, generally normally grown, who don't have a congenital abnormality. 
So if you prevent this death, you have 80 years of life gained. So it could actually be you know, between two and three million pounds to prevent uh, one of these deaths and still be cost effective. Second point is that we looked at death uh, and it's likely that if the interventions are put in place to remove these differences between daytime and nighttime, you'd also get reduced rates of the non-lethal consequences of interpartum anoxia, such as cerebral palsy. And cerebral palsy is economically important for the health service because it's very expensive to look after these children as they go through, as they go through life. And then the third point uh, relates to uh, litigation. The NHS litigation bill is in the region of seven to £800 million pounds a year and 38% of that bill is for maternity care, and a very substantial proportion of that relates to care during labour. Uh, and so again, you know, if, if, it's, if, if, it's, if what we're looking at here is uh, suboptimal care during labour, uh, then attempts to address that may also uh, yield benefits in terms of reduced litigation costs for the NHS. Gordon, thanks for joining us today. And that's all for this week. Join us next week when we'll bring you more research and analysis from the world of medicine. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.